0: our heart that we would have so much to just proclaim your name that Jesus would be exalted among the nations and that it would come through us those who are followers of Jesus that we would not be ashamed or embarrassed to proclaim your name God that we would do so boldly and with pride and father that we would would be the kinds of people who would let the world know that we have a God who loves us and that is calling us into relationship with him and so we thank you for giving us hope in Jesus. We thank you for giving us life in Jesus. And we want to be the, the people of God who will make your name known throughout this world. Help us to do that, Father. We love you and ask and pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. You can have a seat so good to worship with you guys and uh, love, love hearing you sing out and love hearing God's truth proclaimed. And uh, this morning, as we kind of think about this football weekend that we've had, we've all had a chance to cheer for our teams and do some different things. But today we have an opportunity to cheer and to glorify God through the reading of his word. And so if you have your Bibles, let's cheer for something that's uh, infallible and that stands forever. Turn to Acts chapter 3 and let's just celebrate that today. And uh, we are so excited. If you want to follow along with us in, uh, in the message today on uh, the YouVersion Bible app, you can do that. Uh, if you want to follow along by taking notes on the back of your outline, or if you are at home tracking with us on Facebook Live this morning, thanks for being with us. Uh, but we would love for you to join us in Acts chapter 3, starting verse 1, and uh, here's what we read. One day, Peter and John were going up to the temple at the time of prayer at 3 in the afternoon. Now, a man who was lame from birth was being carried to the temple gate called Beautiful Well, we're in the middle of a series right now that we've called This is Living, and we're talking about different stages of spiritual growth, different stages of spiritual life. And, uh, and we've so far covered three different aspects of our spiritual development, spiritual life. And so we started out in this, the phase that we talk about being spiritually dead. We said everybody is born into this world spiritually dead, that we are set against God, apart from God because of our spiritual condition. Uh, we have a sin sickness in our hearts. And because of that sin, we're set against God. And so those of us uh, who are believers in Christ, if you know someone who is spiritually dead, what does a spiritually dead person need? They need someone who will share the gospel. Spiritually dead people need to hear the truth of God's salvation. They need to know and be exposed to the idea that Jesus Christ was God's son, came to earth, uh, who put on human flesh. He was God in flesh, that he lived a completely sinless life, And that at the end of his time doing what God had called him to do, he gave his life on our behalf, dying a cruel death at the hands of a Roman cross. And that in Jesus dying, he took on himself the punishment from God that we deserved. God poured his wrath out on Jesus on that cross, and he bore our sin and our shame. And because of Jesus' act and his burial, his death, and then his ultimate resurrection, we can have life in Christ. Because Jesus lives, we can live. Because Jesus is with God, we can be with God. And so a spiritually dead person needs someone to share the gospel. Once you accept the gospel, once you hear that message of hope in Jesus, and you say, I want that, I want to have a relationship with Jesus, and you accept Him to be your Savior and your Lord, you invite Him into your life to change you, to forgive you, you step into a new phase of spiritual life called spiritual infancy. It's just like being born. We talk about it as being born again. It's not a physical rebirth, it's a spiritual rebirth. That we come alive inside because Jesus brings our soul alive. And when we're spiritually reborn, what does a spiritual infant need? Well, they need a lot of the same kinds of things that a physical infant needs. They need a spiritual parent who's going to be authentic with them, who's going to tell them the truth. They need someone to invest their life in them. And then they need somebody who's going to teach them new habits and new truth. And so we kind of see in that stage of spiritual infancy that a spiritual infant needs habits, truth poured into them. They need an authentic life expressed to them so that they can learn how to grow in their faith in Christ. Once you kind of move past that spiritual infancy place, you get to a place where you're a spiritual child. You kind of go, what does a spiritual child look like? Well, spiritual children, again, very much similar to physical children. They need to grow and mature and develop. And so uh, spiritual children need this. They need three things. Uh, They need someone who's going to parent them to connect them to God, to help connect them to a community group, and then to connect them to a purpose. And so spiritual children, as they grow in their faith, they start going, I really need to connect to God. I want to learn how to do my own Bible study. I want to learn how to pray. I want to learn how to share my faith. I want to connect with God and I want to connect to, to the church. I want to connect to his people. And I do that in, in a community group. I want to be in a place where Iron can sharpen iron, so to speak, where we can say, I want you to teach me what you know. I want to share my struggles with you, my pains with you. And I want you to take those things and pray for me and share your struggles and your pains so I can pray for you. And let's do life together. And so we invite people into that relationship. And then we need to help them not only find the church and community, but find their purpose. So they start to understand what they're called to do as believers in Christ. So throughout this series, we've really been looking at three things that we've said all along the steps of the way. What do we hope everybody gets out of this series? There are three things. The first one is this. We hope everybody can identify what spiritual life stage you're in. That you can leave after this series and go, I, am I spiritually dead? Is my, have, have I not ever invited Christ into my life? Am I a spiritual infant? Have I just started this Christian journey? What do I need to, to do next? So am I a spiritual child? What spiritual life stage are you in? The second thing is that we want everybody to be able to learn how to navigate to the next step of their journey. Because just like we wouldn't want an infant to stay an infant, we say they would. It's like, oh, look how cute. I hope you stay a little forever. We really don't want that though, right? Like you want your kids to grow up and move out and go have their own kids, right? And so that's what you want. And so when we think about this, we go, we want everybody to know, how do I take the next step in my spiritual development? How do I continue to grow spiritually as a follower of Christ? And then the third thing is we want everyone to learn how to make disciples of others along the journey, that everybody's on a spiritual journey. And the highest calling that Jesus gives to us is that we would be disciples of Christ who would make disciples of Christ. And so we hold that out as the goal for all people in this church, that everyone should learn how to make disciples along the spiritual journey that they're on. Jesus said Himself when He left this earth and ascended back to heaven, He said, I want you to go into all the world and make disciples. He didn't call us to make converts. He didn't call us to educate people. He said, I want you to go and reproduce in them what I've placed into you. I want people in this world to know what it means to be a passionate follower of Jesus and to be able to take the message of Jesus to the ends of the earth. So go and make disciples. That's our highest calling in life. And so when we see these things, we hope that everybody can figure out where you are in that path. Now, today, we're going to talk about the spiritual life stage of being a spiritual adolescent or young adult. They were kind of getting into those teenage years and upper years, right? And so, this is the coolest thing because you don't get spiritual acne in this stage. It's just like you just get to be a young adult, a spiritual teenager, and not have those problems to worry about. Um, so, what categorizes someone who's a spiritual young adult? If you're taking notes this morning, just track along with me here. Here's some things that we might see in a spiritual young adult they start becoming very God centered. Spiritual young adults are also very people-centered, others-centered. See, in that childhood stage that we talked about last week, we said that they're very oftentimes in childhood we're very self-centered. Mine, mine, get for me, do for me, right? Mom, I need. Dad, I need. And we're very self-centered. But as you grow through that stage and into the next stage of maturity, you become very God-centered. Go, I want to know more about who God is. And as God shapes my understanding of the world and life, I want to know how to serve other people all so become very God-centered, very other-centered. Most young adult Christians are in that stage where they're very mission-minded and they're often action or service-oriented. They start saying, it's not enough for me just to come to church and know things I want to go out and do on behalf of God for other people. So they become very mission-minded and action-centered. And so that's part of the, the life stage that we see in the spiritual maturity of a person growing in their walk with Christ. So at the beginning of the stage of spiritual development, People in this stage are starting to look for their places to minister and serve. Where you might first just say, I just need to find a church to get connected with. I believe in Jesus. I want to be around Jesus' people. I want to go to a church. As you grow in your faith, now you start going, now I I want to put into practice the things that I'm being taught. I want to go out and do for other people. That's when you know you've kind of reached into that next stage of your spiritual development. In Acts chapter 1 and 2, if you were to go back and read that, and if you're not familiar with the story of Acts chapter 1 and 2, go back and take a look at that sometime. But in Acts chapters 1 and 2, we start to see some incredibly powerful things happen in the life of the church. And so what happens when Jesus comes back to life, first and foremost, you're kind of like, yeah, Jesus came back to life. He died the most excruciating, horrific death you can imagine, and then he beat death and came back to life. That could be the start of the story right there and just be like, we're done, that's it. Uh, in fact, I just read last night, uh, Mel Gibson is getting ready to do a production following up on the passion of the Christ called Resurrection where he's going to say there is more to the story than the death of Jesus. And at the end of the Passion movie, the stone being rolled away and Jesus kind of just stepping out into the bright light and going, oh, that's the story, right? Now it's like, but what happens next? Jesus came back to life. And then he spent time with his disciples. And he trained them, he taught them, here's what you're going to do next. It says that the Bible tells us that in that period of time, those 40 days that Jesus spent with his disciples, he taught them about the kingdom of God, the kingdom of heaven. And then Jesus did the most crazy, amazing thing you've ever heard. Like if coming back to life wasn't enough, then Jesus takes his boys up on top of a mountain and he floats off into heaven, right? This is where your jaw drops open and you're like, what the heck just happened here? This is where the disciples are watching and Jesus floats up because you've never seen that before, right? Nobody's seen that before. Jesus ascends back to heaven. And the Bible says that as the disciples are just watching, staring up into the sky, watching their master leave earth that their mouths are wide open and angels show up and have to be like, okay boys, close the mouths, get back to Jerusalem, there's more to do. We have a job for you. You're advancing toward this next stage of development. You've got to grow up a little bit now. Jesus is gone. You're on your own. Get back to Jerusalem. Now guess what? The Holy Spirit is going to come to you. And the Bible says that in the day of Pentecost, at the celebration of Pentecost, one of the Jewish festivals, the Spirit of God from heaven descended on those who were followers of Jesus. And that they became alive like they had never been alive before. That they went out into the streets of Jerusalem and they started preaching about Jesus and His resurrection and calling people to faith in Jesus. And on that day alone, 3,000 people became Christians. And the church just explodes in growth. And not only does that happen, but the Bible says that every day after that, as they continued to meet together and fellowship together and break bread together and listen to the apostles' teaching and pray with one another, that daily more and more people started to follow after Jesus. And so you start to see this incredible explosion take place. The first couple of chapters of Acts are amazing. And then we get to the third chapter of Acts. And we see Peter and John, and they're walking to the temple one day. And they come across this man who's been lame from birth. And his friends have just brought him to the temple, and that's where they interact with him. They intersect with this guy. His friends would bring him there and leave him every day for him just to beg. It actually reminds me a lot of a story we looked at in the very first week of this series when we talked about Jesus, who had an encounter with a man who had been an invalid from the time that he was born probably about 38 years, according to Scripture. But he had been an invalid for 38 years. And Jesus walks up to him and sees him on the side of the road and says, hey, do you want to get better? It's like, Jesus, what a stupid question. Of course he wants to get better. Who wants to sit on the side of the road as an invalid for the rest of their life? Yes, he wants to get better. And the guy goes, well, sure I do. But I, I can never get to the right place at the right time where there's healing that takes place. And Jesus says, why don't you pick up your mat and walk? And the guy does. He gets up and he's completely healed. Jesus heals him. And so when you see all of this take place, it reminds me so much of what Peter and John are doing because Peter and John had been there with Jesus when he healed that man. But Jesus didn't leave it at that. Do you remember the story? He found the man later after he had healed him. And he said, hey, listen, I want you to know this. You need to stop sinning or something worse could happen to you. Remember the story? You're like, what could be worse than going back to being an invalid on the side of the road? And I think the reality that we need to wake up to is that Jesus is talking about a spiritual reality if you don't leave your life of sin, if you don't come into relationship with God in a way that honors Christ, then the worst that's going to happen to you is you're going to be separated from God for all eternity in a very real place that the Bible calls hell and describes as as a place of burning and torture for eternity. Jesus says there is a worse that can happen than you being an invalid. You need to wake up spiritually. You need to come alive. Stop sinning and come alive. And so we see Peter and John, they've watched Jesus do this. They've watched Jesus heal this guy, talk to him about faith, take these next steps. They've seen it and they've been sent out a couple of times to do some of this stuff. But now they're on their own. Now they find Jesus having risen, ascended back to heaven and the disciples have to do some things on their own. See, here's what Jesus, the ultimate disciple maker, here's what he knew that spiritual young adults needed. Three things. And if you're taking notes, write these three things down. Jesus knew that spiritual young adults needed to be equipped to do ministry. They need to be equipped. If you are a disciple maker and you have someone who's coming along in your spiritual journey with you and you're calling them to be disciples of Christ, what do we do as as experienced disciples? We call them, we equip them to do ministry. The second thing is this, provide ministry opportunities. Give them chances to stretch their legs. Give them chances to go and minister and serve under your watchful eye. That you would say, as you're learning and growing in your faith in Christ, I want you to know what it looks like to be a disciple. And I'm going to give you opportunities to serve. And I'm going to watch you. And when you fail, I'm going to teach you what you did wrong. That's what Jesus did with his disciples. He would let them make mistakes and then he'd come along beside them and say, let me show you what you did wrong. Here's how you correct this. Peter, you took your eyes off me. You sank in the water. Boys, you didn't fast and pray to get that demon out of that little kid. You got to fast and pray about some of these things. He's instructional. He teaches. He lets them go and minister, and then he teaches them. And then the third thing is this: then we release people to do ministry. So, all right, you've been equipped. You've been given opportunities. You know what you're doing now. So now I'm going to release you. Go and serve. Do. Be a part of God's work in this world. Jesus spent three years equipping the disciples to do His work, and now that He's been physically removed from their presence, He's ascended to heaven. He's given them. He's left them ministry opportunities. And they've been released to do the ministry that Jesus has trained them for, right? Jesus is no longer here. So for his work to carry on, the disciples are going to have to pick up the pace and keep moving forward. So Jesus has equipped them. He's left them ministry opportunities. And now he's releasing them to go and minister on their own. Here's where we make a mistake in the church sometimes, though. We'll call people into salvation. They'll give their heart to Jesus to become a follower of Christ, to be a disciple of Jesus, and then we'll go, man, it's so exciting that you're a believer now. Let me give you a job to do. Why don't you get engaged and go serve in children's ministry? Go serve in the youth ministry. Go serve in the kitchen ministry. Go serve in whatever it is. Let's go. Let us get you engaged in ministry. And we never equip them to do that. We just go, you're in the family. Let's give you a job. Because everybody in the family needs to keep their, their way, right? You've got to earn your way. And so we'll just give people jobs without ever equipping them. That's so far contradictory to the way Jesus did things. Jesus would call people to himself and then he would equip them to do the job that he was going to send them off to do. He would give them ministry opportunities under his watchful eye. And when they made mistakes, he would teach them. If they did something great, he celebrated with them. And then after those things, once they were ready, then he would release them to go and do ministry. And so we need to be aware of that being part of the progression of being disciple-makers who are calling others into relationship with Jesus. Jesus was the ultimate disciple-maker, and that's the way he did things, and that's the way we should do things. It makes me think of a a man that I knew in Texas, a guy named John. John was a a man who started coming to our church. He accepted Christ when he was in his um, early to to mid-30s, became a believer in Jesus at that time and, and stage of his life, and Uh, And John was incredible. We do this with people sometimes where we just go, oh, you're a Christian, now go serve. Because they're high energy leaders, they're high capacity leaders, uh, they're good at what they do. Some of you, I mean, if you've raised two or three or four kids, we're just like, oh, if you can do that, you can teach 15, 20, you know, three-year-olds in the nursery, so go and do that, right? And so we'll just go, you need a job to do, let's give you a job to do. John was kind of that way. John was a high capacity leader, entrepreneur, he could do anything great relationally. But John wasn't a guy that I just wanted to say, hey, you know what? Now that you're a Christian, go serve, go plug in. Instead, what we did with John was we followed these kinds of things that Jesus taught us. He said, John, you know what? You need to be equipped to do ministry. I want to call you to serve in our student ministry. And so we asked him to pair up with one of our most experienced leaders. And for a year, he sat in a classroom full of high school guys with one of our best leaders. And he watched how he did ministry. And that guy would meet with him on a consistent basis. And every now and then, John would get an opportunity to teach while Jeff was there with him. And after the class was over, they would get to sit and talk and go, Hey, what would you think? How did you do? Did you make some mistakes? Was there anything we could do better? Let's just debrief this. And he equipped him and he gave him opportunities to minister. On top of that, John would come to my office a couple of times a month and just bring his Bible. Brand new believer. He'd just come into my office to sit down and go, I don't understand. Let's talk. And he would just start asking questions. He was reading like crazy And he would just go, I need to ask questions. And I would say, fire away, man. And we would just talk about things. All the while, John's getting equipped. He's learning. He's growing in his faith. He's being given some opportunities to minister, not by himself, but with the watchful eye of a trained leader. And after about a year, Jeff and I went to John and said, hey, man, you know what? We see it that you have developed and matured so much. We think you're ready to take your own class of 7th and 8th grade boys because nobody else wants to do it, and you're here. So you're going to go do that, right? And it was like, so man, you're the man. You are going to do it. And at first, it was like, nah, I don't think I'm ready for that. It'd be way better if I just stay with Jeff and just continue to do his class and help him. And it was like, no, no, no. You need to get pushed out of the nest. It's time for you to go. You could stay in Jeff's class and be the co-leader and do that and never mature any further, but you need to grow up as a mature follower of Christ. So we're going to kick you out, and we're going to give you seventh and eighth graders. And he took that class with a little bit of trepidation, but he took it. And it wasn't long after that that his class started to grow because he started relationally investing in those young boys. He started going to their football games and basketball games and interacting with them and hanging out with them. He became a really good teacher. They knew he was interested in them, that they could ask any question and they wouldn't be made fun of and he was going to help them get to the right answer. And If he didn't know he was going to point him to the right person that could help him figure it out, and he did all of that, and he be, just became a stellar leader for our youth ministry. But we didn't just throw him in the deep end of the pool. We equipped him to minister. We gave him opportunities to minister with a watch fly, and then we released him to do ministry. That's what it should look like for us as we're growing in our faith. If you are a follower of Christ, who's in this stage of adolescence or young adulthood, and you're going, I feel like I'm ready to do something. We want to help you. If you have a spiritual parent in your life that will just start pushing you toward ministry and engaging, that's your next step. Let's look back at Acts chapter 2 again because Peter and John have a similar experience. When Jesus was with them, man, they could have really just been defined consistently in the childhood stage because Jesus was there. He was the one doing everything for them. He was the one they could look to when they made a mistake, and Jesus was going to make it all better. But at the same time, they stayed in that very childish mentality. While Jesus was here, the disciples could have very easily been considered in the childhood stage because they were constantly being all about themselves. Jesus, we want to be uh, able to be servants of yours in the kingdom, and we want to sit at your right hand and your left hand. Jesus would go, no, 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 you don't understand. Guys, I'm going to go to Jerusalem and die on a cross. And when I get there, you're going to scatter and flee. And they go, yeah, 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 that's fine. But we want to be in your kingdom on your right and on your left. Okay, boys, you don't understand. We're going to Jerusalem and I'm going to die. Yeah, 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 the whole death thing, that's fine. We want to be important in your kingdom. Like they just constantly argued about who was most important, like little kids do. I'm more important. No, I'm more important. No, that's mine. No, that's mine. That was the disciples. On the night that Jesus died. He starts telling them again, guys, I'm going to be crucified. One of you is going to betray me. And they start arguing, no, 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 we would never betray you. In fact, Jesus, we would die for you. We would die before we let anything happen to you. And Jesus goes, no, no, tonight, all of you are going to run away. No, 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 Jesus, we're not. They're so self-centered. Peter, at one point in time, uh, we talked about this last week. Peter at one point in time said, Jesus, I'm never going to let you die. That's not, it doesn't fit in my worldview of the messianic understanding of prophecy. And Jesus has to look at him and go, you need to get behind me, Satan, because you're out of line. You don't understand the things of God, but you're after your things. They were so self-centered. In fact, the night that Jesus dies, when they've all proclaimed their loyalty to him, we'll die for you, Jesus. They get to the garden and the Roman guards show up. A mob of men come with torches and spears. And to a person, the disciples run away. In fact, they're so childish. One of the gospels, Mark's gospel records that a Roman soldier reached out and grabbed one of the disciples by his clothes and pulled his clothes off and he ran off naked through the garden. That's mature, right? They're just immature, they're childish. But now, now that Jesus has died, now that he's come alive, Now that he spent an additional 40 days talking to them about their role as leaders in the kingdom, what the kingdom of God is really about, he's equipped them. He's given them opportunities to minister. And now he's releasing them to go do that. And that's where Peter and John find themselves. Look in Acts chapter 3 again. It says, when he, being the crippled man, when he saw Peter and John about to enter the temple, he asked them for money. And Peter looked straight at him, as did John. And then Peter said, look at us. All right, so here's this man. He's begging. You have to know he has low self-esteem. He's sitting on the side of the road, a broken human being. And he asks for money. He's probably got his hands up saying, hey, will you guys give me money? He's not even making eye contact. He's looking down. He's just hoping they'll do something. And the Bible says that Peter stops and says, hey, look at us. He has to call him to eye contact. He says, look at me. And the guy goes, apparently he thinks that if he looks up, Peter's going to have something for him. So he's got his hand out and he finally looks up and Peter says, hey, I don't have silver and gold. That's a bummer, right? I don't have silver or gold, but what I have I'm going to give to you. In the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, walk. And he reaches out his hand and he pulls the guy to his feet. And instantly, the man's healed. And so you see this story break out. And when Peter and John walk by this man, he has one thing in mind that he needs. He needs money to live off of. He thinks that's what's going to fulfill him. He asks them directly for money. He had stationed himself right outside the temple. What better place to go in Jerusalem to get somebody to help you than around the religious people, right? Station yourself outside the church. Those people are generous. They're compassionate. They're kind. If you're going to beg somewhere, that's a place to beg. And so that's what he's done. He's stationed himself right outside of the church, right outside of the temple. And he's got his hands out. He thinks he needs money, but when Peter and John come along, they said, listen, we don't have silver and gold to give you, but what we have is better. Why don't you stand up and walk in the name of Jesus? And the man's healed. See, the guy thought he knew what he needed. But in reality, Peter and John knew what he really needed. He thought he needed money to live off of. Peter and John knew he needed to be made whole. He needed to be given life. And so they called him to that. Peter said, you want one thing, but I've got something better. For us in this room this morning, maybe you think you've got what you need exactly. Maybe you think, man, if I could just get a little bit more money, if I could just have a little bit nicer house, if I could just make a little bit better uh, earning living, then I'll be all set. Man, if I could just, if I could just have you know, a better high, if I could just get better drugs, if I could find some way to make myself content... Man, if I could have more sex, whatever it is that you would think and go, in my mind, what is it that I think I need? And for those of us who are believers in Christ that see a world that's chasing after and pursuing after things that leave them constantly empty, to go, I know you think you need that, but you don't. You don't need to make better grades. You don't need to go to a better school. You need a relationship with Jesus that will change your life. And Peter and John say, we don't have what you think you need. We have what you really need. So we're going to give you that. And they call him into relationship. And so when you see this, it's like in spiritual growth. If you find yourself in the childhood stage, like we talked about last week, for us, sometimes we might think, you know what, we've got exactly what we need. I've got it figured out what I really need, just like the beggar on the side of the road. I need money. For us, in the spiritual childhood stage, we go, you know what I need? I need to be connected to the church. I need to be connected to a small group. And I need to figure out my purpose. And once I know those things, that's where I'll stop. I'm good. I I learn how to read my Bible. I go to church. I'm in a community group. All's good, right? And listen, those are all great things. That's what we should be doing. Go to church. Get in a small group. Find out what your purpose is in life under the authority of God. Find those things. But here's where a spiritual parent comes into play in your life. When they see you in this spiritual childhood stage of development and they call you to something more and go, there's more for you to do. Now that you're in a church, now that you're in a community group, now that you're learning your purpose, now let me help you find ways to serve. Let me equip you for ministry. Let me give you some ministry opportunities. And now let me release you out to go and do ministry on your own. That's what a spiritual child needs to move to spiritual adolescence, spiritual young adulthood. And that's what we as spiritual parents need to call out of people. And so when we see all these things going on, the question we have to ask ourselves is, are we aware of the power we have available to us in Jesus. I mean, do you know the power you have? The world needs what you have. As followers of Jesus, the world is like that beggar sitting on the side of the road going, will you give me something uh, inconsequential? And we're going, I have something of substance to give you that's far better. But do you know the power that you have? In the relationship you have with Jesus, do you know the power that you hold? Think about it in the case of Uh, of driving a car see sometimes we get to this place in our christian life where we get so comfortable with jesus and so familiar with jesus that we forget how extremely powerful jesus is that we forget we have a message that could change the world if we'll share it it's like driving a car in the sense that when you first started driving you remember driving a car for the first time how scared you were a little nervous a little excited all kinds of crazy right and you're like i just don't know this is a powerful vehicle i remember my parents telling me all the time when they gave me a truck i wanted a mustang they gave me a tank and so it was like, we're going to make sure you're safe out there because we don't trust you. And it was like, but you need to know this is powerful. There's power here. And so driving is a great microcosm of discipleship in this stage. Because when I was learning to drive, what did I need to do? I needed to be equipped to drive. So my parents put a driver's manual in my hand and said, learn this. Go take a test on it. If you pass that, you'll get a driver's permit, right? Now guess what I'm going to do? I'm going to give you opportunities to drive. So that I'm going to sit right beside you. You're not going anywhere without me, right? And so parents are going to ride with you. They're going to give you opportunities to drive. They're going to tell you when, they, when you do things wrong. My next-door neighbor was the same age as I was. His dad would sit in the seat right beside him with a rolled-up newspaper. And if he got on the line or crossed into something, he would slap him with the newspaper and go, you're doing it wrong, right? It was just like that was not really corrective. That's not the way I would have done it, but that's how he did it. I was like, you're going to kill yourself. Um, who hits somebody with a newspaper while they're driving? You're going to run right off the road, right? But that's what he would do. And he would say, you're making mistakes. He would try to correct the mistake. Negative reinforcement. And so you're going, here's the deal. I had somebody sitting beside me, giving me an opportunity to drive, taking me places, and then doing it on their own. Eventually, after I drove with my parents for a year, they handed me the keys and said, now you're off. I'm releasing you to go. And do you remember what it was like the first time you drove by yourself? Hands on the wheels, 10 and 2, radio off so there was no noise. so You could hear everything that was going on around you, checking the mirrors constantly, eyes on the road in front of you. Like, you are seriously, you are just like crazy tense, but excited, right? But do you remember after, I don't know, several months of driving by yourself, you got familiar and comfortable with the power of the car that you had under your control? Now you're driving with your knee while you're eating cheeseburgers that you pulled through Wendy's to get, radios cranked up so everybody on the road can hear it. You're checking Facebook. You're like... This is easy. Why are you doing that? Because you've gotten comfortable and familiar with the power that you have. And you forget it can be destructive if you're not careful. Sometimes with Jesus, we forget the power that he holds. And that Jesus in our life, if we won't take our focus off of him, he has the power through us to change the world if we'll only share him with others. That's what we're called to do. And so we see these kinds of things happening, but we have the need to share with others. So the question we have to to ask ourselves is, what am I going to do with the relationship I have with Jesus? What am I going to do with it? Am I going to keep that to myself? Am I going to keep that power to myself? Or am I going to share it with others? What will I do? What will you do with the relationship you have with Jesus? Here's the last passage I want us to look at. I'll make one more point. 1 Corinthians chapter 13, verse 11 says this. This is Paul talking. And he writes and he says, When I was a child, I talked like a child. I thought like a child. I reasoned like a child. But when I became a man, I put the ways of childhood behind me. See, Paul understood there was a time to be a child. But then there's a time to grow up look, I I acted like a child, I thought like a child, I talked like a child. But when I got to a place of manhood, it was time to let the child die and grow into my purpose. And this is where we get, if you're not careful, you can get stuck in this stage of spiritual childhood to the point that you never move on to adolescence and young adulthood that you always just want to be about, I want to take in, I want to go to church, I want to be taught, I want to go to community group, I want to find out what my purpose is, I want to do for me, for me, for me, and you're stuck in the spiritual childhood stage. And Paul's going, there's a time for that, but there's a time for you to move on. In fact, if you're taking notes, write this down, maturing to spiritual adulthood has to be something you actively strive for. It's not going to happen by accident. Paul says, when I was a child, I acted like a child, reasoned like a child, thought like a child, did all these childish things. But when I became a man, I had to put that stuff down and I had to actively pursue being a man. The same thing's true in our spiritual life. There's a time to be a spiritual child and there's a time to say, I want to be about others and I want to be about God and I want to use what God's given to me to serve and to go on His behalf. And so the disciples, if you watch them, they were very much like this. They were moving into this young adult stage of life after Jesus left. Before Jesus left, the disciples at the beginning of the book of Acts, they're doing everything. The church is growing like crazy. There's incredible things happening, but they're doing everything. They get to a place and a point in time when needs of other people around them stop being met. And there starts to be grumbling in the church. And they come to the disciples and go, hey, some of the women over here, they're not having their means now. Oh, yeah, well, some of the ladies over here, they're not getting stuff taken care of for them. We need to do stuff. And the disciples are like, whoa, 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 whoa. We're making a mistake here. We can't do everything on our own. And they start to realize, you know what Jesus did with us? Jesus equipped us to do ministry. He gave us ministry opportunities. And then he released us to do ministry. Since Jesus left, we've been doing all the ministry and not equipping anybody. And if we're going to be like Jesus, we need to equip people for ministry give them opportunities to minister, and then release them to go and do ministry. So what did the disciples do? They called men out of the church and said, we're going to train you. We want you to be deacons. We want you to be servants and leaders. And we're going to equip you. We're going to give you opportunities. And then we're going to release you to go and do. Because that's what Jesus did with us. And that's what we're going to do with you. Can you imagine if the disciples had never made disciples? What would have happened if the disciples had just gone, we'll just do everything. We've been with Jesus. We know what to do. We'll just do everything. And they never helped transform anybody else. Man, the movement of the church would have stopped like that. When the disciples were gone, the church would have been gone. Because they did everything. And it's not right for that to happen. That's why as spiritual parents and as spiritual leaders, we want to push more and more into discipleship to where you're given opportunities to be equipped to serve, to take on opportunities to minister, and then to be released to go and do that we hope that's the spiritual progression that you're on. When we think about these things, we've been following the story of of Mark Riesbeck and his life over this entire journey. I'm going to call Mark to come up and talk a little bit about the stage of life he found himself in. As as we've tracked with him over the last several weeks, he's talked about what it meant to be dead and spiritually dead and, and figuring out he did not have a relationship with God. He was dead inside. And then stepping into that spiritual infant stage when he came into faith in Christ and was passionate and excited about his newfound faith. And then somebody ministered to him and discipled him. And in that childhood stage, he was still kind of all about himself, but there were things that he was starting to learn and do and grow. And now, today, you're going to hear more of his story as he steps into that young adult stage of being a disciple of Jesus. And so, Mark, I want to invite you to come up and just share a little bit more of your story with us.
1: Thank you, Joel. Um, this didn't work out in the first service, but is it okay if I take a love offering? No, it, okay, maybe not okay um, yes, Joel just told me uh, told you about the first three weeks of what happened with me when last week he we talked about the Holy Spirit and how the things I was learning was you know coming out in, getting into my bloodstream and getting out and the conviction of the Holy Spirit on life changes and things like that. Well, the next step. Is, <clears throat> excuse me, I worked as a bellman in Las Vegas, and uh, we worked different shifts. And one of the things that you uh, learn to do is you stand in line waiting, and you get to talk to the other guys. Well, as a new Christian, one guy that worked on my shift was Jimmy Mack, and he was kind of a slight guy, kind of quiet. And we got talking one day, and he says, You know, I want to go out with this operator up in the PBX. Department, but she won't go out with anybody unless they're a Christian. And he said, "Well, I'm a Catholic." And he said, "Aren't I a Christian?" And I said, "We started dialogue, and I said, Jimmy, you could be a Catholic, a Methodist, a Baptist, but still not a Christian. And it's about it's not about a religion; it's about a relationship. So him and I started meeting together. We were on the same shift, so we were actually having a Bible study in the Dunes Hotel in one of the conference rooms before we went to work. Just him and I. And then there was another guy, Tommy Joyce, big, powering black man. Quiet as a lamb, but a womanizer. He flirted, he cheated, he did everything he could, uh, every chance he could get. And one day I got the nerve to say to him, I said, Tommy, do you know how much you're hurting your wife and your kids by living this way? And he kind of melted, and he said he used to go to church and all that stuff but in his past, and he started coming to the Bible study. So then another guy joined. So we had three or four guys meeting on a regular basis in a hotel, in a casino, in Vegas. And uh, that lasted about a year or so, and we kind of went different directions. And by the way, Jimmy Mack married Berlin Um, A couple years later, after he came to know the Lord, and she started dating him, and they got married. And Tommy Joyce, after he retired from the hotel, got into ministry at his church. So things can change. But I want to fast forward about 10 years. And uh, my family and another family, we just got kind of tired of going to churches that were fighting about music and jeans and ties and everything. And we just got tired of it. Las Vegas is very hard on churches. It's a tough town. Anyway, we decided we should start a fellowship, and so I went to a seminar in Illinois on how to plant a church, a Willow Creek Church, and came back with some ideas. So my friend and I, we'd go out once a week, and we'd canvas the neighborhood, and we'd knock on doors and say, do you attend church on a regular basis? Yes or no? Yes. Thank you. And we'd walk away. And curiosity would get to everybody and say, why do you ask? Well, oh, so we're starting a new church. We're not going to try to take you from yours, but we're starting a neighborhood church. Okay. So when the answer was no, we'd walk away and say, thank you. Well, wait, why do you ask? We're starting a neighborhood church. And that led into dialogue. So at one point, we launched the church in my backyard. Forty people showed up. It was awesome. And it grew. and We ended up going in and renting a dance studio. And we were a portable church for quite a while. And it went on for a couple, three years, and like the history of Vegas, it kind of disbanded after, after a while. But during that time, there was a girl next door that would come over. Um, she, she was a stepchild of a neighbor and come up on summers and Christmas. She was coming to our backyard service. And years later, after everything went away, she kept in touch with my kids, a couple of my kids. And what happened to that girl was, she received Christ in that, in that backyard one day, didn't tell anybody, but later on she went to Bible college and she got plugged in to a ministry that um, oversees missionaries and that's, that's where she was working in Southern California. So you never know where you're going to touch and where you're going to go. But one of the things um, in the first service that Joel brought out in verse 2 that caught my eye was those people would bring the beggar to the place of begging, and they would take him halfway, but that's where they would leave him. And I think a lot of times that's what happens in church in some cases where they'll bring you part of the way, but not completely to where you need to be. And we all have the answer down inside. We all have the answers for anybody's questions. And so last week I said this was going to be the best story. I lied. It's next week. Thank you.
0: Thanks, Mark. I appreciate that. I'm going to ask our band to come back up. We're going to sing one last song together. But as they do, man, I just want to encourage you. With Mark and his story, he had been he had been equipped. He had had his life changed by Jesus, and he had gone from being self-centered to God-centered and other-centered. And then somebody equipped him and gave him opportunities to minister and then released him. And he, he and some friends went out and were able to plant a church, not because he's a full-time vocational pastor or anything like that, but just because he was passionate about what God was doing in his life and saw a need to go out and be released to serve that's what we should be about calling people to. And I find it interesting if you look at the passage that we were dealing with this morning in, in Acts chapter 3. When Peter calls this man to, to jump up to his feet and heals him, it says in verse 8, He jumped to his feet and began to walk, and then he went with them into the temple courts, walking and jumping and praising God. See, so here's the, the thing that, that I found fascinating with this man. His entire life, he had been brought and put outside of the temple to beg. He had never been inside the temple before. But when Peter and John came along and healed him, he got excited about what Jesus was about. And he went running into the temple. Because the power of Jesus to change lives gets people excited. And we should all be ready to run and jump and sing when walking in the doors of the church. But if we'll tell people who are spiritually dead about our faith in Christ, and if we can equip people to do ministry and give them opportunities to do ministry and send them out to do ministry. And if you will take your faith in Christ and share it with the world, then I believe that when people come into that saving relationship with Jesus, they'll come running into our doors, excited to be here, passionate because someone cared enough to help them find healing in Jesus. And that'll change the world. So we're going to sing this last song together. And as we do, I want to ask you just to stand. And as you're standing, I want to just ask you to pray this week. God, show me as we sing who are the people that I need to share with, who are the people that I need to disciple, and what steps do I need to take as a disciple of Jesus to go to the next level of ministry. So let's sing and pray together.